Hebrews 11, 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. You've been standing a while. I'm going to ask you to remain standing for about another 120 seconds. As I read to you this nursery rhyme that I stumbled across when preparing for this message. Stems from rural England dating back to the 16th century entitled, This is the House that Jack Built. Here's how it reads. This is the house that Jack built. This is the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the cow which the crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with the crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the man all tattered and torn that kissed the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with the crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the priest all shaven and shorn that married the man all tattered and torn that kissed the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with the crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the cock that crowed in the morn that weak the priest who shaven and shorn that married the man all tattered and torn that kissed the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the moth that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the farmer sowing his corn that kept the cock that crowed the morn that waked the priest all shaven and shorn that married the man all tattered and torn that kissed the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with the crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. Why did I put you through that? Here's why. In reading through that childish nursery rhyme, I realized that there is something so much greater to the house that Jack built than the house itself. It was the opportunities that the house afforded Jack that made it so special. And when pouring over the narrative in Genesis chapter 6, which is where Hebrews 11:7 is drawn from, I am reminded that as captivating as the ark is in its design and in its sheer scope and size, being 1.5 million cubic feet of gross space, the ark represents something much greater than the vessel itself. If you could put down your Bibles and raise your hands, God, we're asking you tonight, to continue what you've already started. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for being here, God. We need you, Jesus. We need a touch and a move of the Holy Ghost tonight. We're asking you to take your liberty, God. You know exactly what we need and you know what's best. And we're just inviting you, Lord, 
to do just that. And everyone said in Jesus' name, you can be seated. With the help of the Lord, I want to preach tonight the purpose of the boat. The purpose of the boat. We live in a day and in an age where the enemy has openly set his sights on the family. There's no question about it. We don't have to wonder. We're not left guessing where he stands, how he feels about the biblical family. The enemy is out to destroy it. And sometimes it can feel very daunting when we look around at the heightened attack and we see it coming from what appears to be all sides. Cartoons. A child cannot watch a cartoon on television without the enemy and the writers of that cartoon slipping content in that's designed to confuse them about who God made them to be. In our schools today, a place where we should be able to look for our children to be protected and to be safe, it's no longer the case. All across our country, curriculum is packed with not only destroying and diluting the, the biblical understanding and traditional understanding of a family, but really pushing God out all together. And not just trying to silence that a God exists, but trying to replace all of that with what we would know would be sinful and destructive to our kids. Our politicians. Oh, how I wish those that ruled over us had our best interests at heart. I wish we could count on them to stand up in the face of every agenda and say, not in our city, not in our country, not here, not now, not ever. I wish we could count on that. But as we've seen over and over again, they have folded so that they can maintain the vote. Actors and actresses and athletes alike, we've allowed our culture to create idols and to put them up on a standard and to look at them. And as we do so, they propagate all of the things that we would believe to be destructive to the family. It goes against everything that we are. It seems like every secular successful person has to be lost. They have to be against the church. They have to be against Christianity. They have to be against the family. They have to be for everything else. It's not accepted to believe in God. It's certainly not accepted to believe in his word. That it's everything we need to know about him. That in his word, we get the understanding of how we live. We get the understanding of what the family looks like. We get everything we need to make it through this world from this book. But everyone that is pushed to our children and outside of the churches as successful, as right, as good, comes against everything that we believe in. Sometimes it can get so heavy because we start to think about where do our kids learn family values? They learn it at church and they learn it at home. But everywhere else they go, they are being torn apart. Everywhere, every store, 
every novel, every book. It seems like every radio station, every TV channel, everything is pushing back against what we're trying to instill in our children. We're trying to build godly homes. We're trying to build holy homes. We're trying to show them that God has designed a way for them and it works. all around us. As bad as it is in our day and age, I want you to look at something with me from Genesis chapter six. During one of the darkest times in our world's history, not our nation's, our world's history. We find that in Genesis chapter six where God says this. He says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He says that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was on evil, not sometimes, not when he got upset, not when he got around the wrong crowd, but continually their thoughts were overcome with wickedness And with evil, so much so that God said it repented the Lord. It repented the Lord that he made man. And it grieved him at his heart. If we look further into verse 7 of chapter 6, we will find this out. The Lord said, I will destroy man. The Lord said that. The same God that sent Jonah to go testify and prophesy to Nineveh, that evil city that came against God's people, that wicked king that had no problem slaying man, woman, and child alike. The same God that sent Jonah in there with no hope of redemption. He didn't tell him that unless you repent, God's going to destroy this city. No, he just told him in this time frame, God is going to destroy this city. That king took it upon himself and he called a fast among the people and he called a fast among the animals and they cried out unto God. They turned from their wicked ways and God did what he always does when somebody turns from their wicked ways and turns to his ways. He held back the destruction. I'm talking about wicked, wicked Nineveh. That God, years before, is who is here in Genesis saying that I will destroy Man, whom I am created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, the creeping thing and the fowls of the earth, the fowls of the air. Destroy everything. We look at how wicked this day and age is and we start to get disheartened. 
We can start to get worried or concerned if we're going to be able to succeed at doing what we need to do. Will we be able to follow the instructions given to us in this book in such a wicked day as such that we live in? I want you to see what I see here in Genesis chapter 6, that while the entire world was being destroyed, God, God preserved the family. When everything else was so wicked that it was being wiped out, God stepped in and was able to protect the family. Look, I know it seems hard. I know it seems challenging. I know it seems difficult. Everything is up against us, and it feels like we're climbing a hill. It feels very hard sometimes. But God wants us to be reminded. He's got this. He's got this. He's got your family. He's going to protect you. He's going to keep you. He's going to prosper you. He's going to bless you. All you got to do is stand firm. I'm not wavering. I'm not scared. I'm not nervous. God will preserve us. If we think it was bad now, I can't imagine what it would have been like then. We can't get weary in well-doing. The enemy would like us to get weary in well-doing. He would like us to get so worn out and so exhausted that we would start to consider the fact that maybe it's not worth the fight. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't pray as hard as we pray. Maybe we shouldn't push that upon our kids as, as much and as often as we do. Maybe we don't need to be in church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday. Maybe Zoom prayer in the morning is just pushing the envelope a little bit too far. Maybe prayer on Monday night for prodigals and prayer on Tuesday night for the whole church is just too much. And he wants us to start feeling the pressure and the weight. And he's hoping that we will get weary in our well-doing. But if we do not allow ourselves to faint, our strength is coming. We will reap in due season. Don't quit praying for your kids. Don't quit praying for your spouse. We got to know that God is for the family. In the end, we win. I know it doesn't seem like it all the time. I know the world throws a lot of things at us. And sometimes we even wonder in the back of our minds, can I make it? But you can. But you can. I can't give you the strength to make it. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ can give you the strength to make it. If we waver not, God will help us. I want to pull two key elements required out of the book of Genesis in chapter 6 to preserve the family. The first thing that is necessary for us as an individual, if we're going to be preservers of the family, we need to have a deep Walk with the Lord. 
we need to have a walk in a relationship with God that is so strong that when he needs to build an ark to make something happen, he taps us on the shoulder. It's got to be a strong enough walk that when he asks you to do something that everyone else is going to laugh at, you're okay with doing it because you've got confidence in him. That when no one else is going to understand, when it's not going to make sense to anybody else year after year, God can trust you because of your relationship with him. It's necessary. I believe with all my heart that Noah was a man of prayer. And I'm not talking about little prayers like he's walking through the city streets and he's just thanking God for the trees and thanking God for the sun and and for the bees. I'm talking about prayer where God and Noah would come together. Where Noah would be able to empty himself before the Lord where he could just tell him everything that was on his mind and everything that he was going through and everything that he was facing. And and if there was a temptation or a challenge approaching Noah, he was able to bring that before the Lord and say, God, I know that you're already aware of these areas that I struggle in, that this could be a snare for me. And he would bring that before him. And God, give me the strength to overcome those things that are set before me, to take me out. And then as he emptied himself before the Lord, as he was honest and vulnerable with the Lord, then the Lord could start to fill him up. He could start to give him the strength that he needs. He could start to provide the sustenance spiritually that he would need to continue to go on throughout the next day, throughout the next moment. The relationship with God was necessary For Noah, if God was going to be able to come to him and ask him to build an ark, it was required. Can you imagine that? Looking across all the earth and everybody was continually allowing their thoughts to be on evil and on wickedness. And God said, no, I got, I got somebody. Oh, I see that things are falling apart all around him, but I got somebody. I've been watching Noah. I've been talking with Noah. I've been communing with Noah. And so when it came time to preserve the family, God knew he could count on Noah. And if we're going to be able to be used by God to preserve our families, God's got to know that he can count on us. Mothers and fathers, we've got to have a walk with him where he can tap us on the shoulder at any time and not be worried if we're going to listen and not be worried if we're going to be offended and not be worried about what other people are going to think. God's got to know that when he needs an ark built, he can tap us on the spot. That we will go wherever he asks us to go and we will do whatever he asks us to do. Spilled. The second thing that we need, it's required, it's necessary for us to be able to be preservers of the family. We need the relationship with God, but we need the relationship with others. We need to have a relationship with others. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Noah? 
right? He had this incredible conversation with the Lord. God gave him this revelation. He gave him these instructions. Noah submitted to that when he was in the presence of God, when God talked to him. But then he had to take that message to his family. What's that going to be like when you have to approach your kids and you have to say, hey, little Susie, I love you. And Johnny, I love you. But God spoke to me and God asked us, he asked me to build an ark. Dad, why are you building an ark? How big is it going to be? Why so big, Dad? I don't understand. All my friends at school say that they, their parents call you crazy. I mean, what kind of relationship do you have to have with your kids where you can go to them and be able to say to your spouse and to your children, God has called us to do something marvelous. It looks radical and ridiculous to the world, but before God, it's exactly what he's calling us to do. We can rally behind it now because we've read the entire story, but how tight Does the relationship need to be where your kids and your wife, they say, okay. Like I would question them. He told you that God spoke to him. He said to build what? A flood? Y'all know we ain't never seen no flood around here, right? Oh, not just here. A worldwide flood? But there was something built between that man and that family. There was some understanding there. They must have seen the relationship that Noah had with God. He must have witnessed the times when he was praying off in the corner by himself. They must have heard him in the early mornings as he was cry out unto God something had to be seen there between the family and between Noah to where the kids could say, okay, dad. As crazy and as radical as it seems, we're behind you. I want my kids to be able to look to me and say, if God told you, that's enough for us. If God spoke to you, dad, we'll do whatever it is he's asked us to do. We've got to have a relationship with our kids. Look, you don't get a relationship like that coming to church, having a great worship service, getting in the car and talking about everything you didn't like. Your kids will love it when you buy them an iPhone. They'll love it when you buy a computer, but you won't be able to lead them in the will of God. If we're going to be able to preserve our families, we've got to have those relationships with God And with our family. The ark allowed Noah's family to be preserved. And Noah's family being preserved is what saved humanity. We're not just talking about family, biological family. We're talking about the spiritual family. The family of God. 
the body of believers, the body of Christ. We've got to be able to work with one another if we're going to be able to take back territory from the enemy. I don't know about you, but I'm not happy just guarding my little islands. I'm not happy just protecting my home, just keeping him at arm's bay. I want to take back everything he stole from us. Look, he's got his hands on things that don't belong to him. Get off our children. Get off my spouse. Get off my family. Get off my grandmother. Get off my co-worker. They don't belong to you. It's not enough to guard what we've got. We've got to take back territory. We won't gain any ground by ourselves. It'll be small and it'll be incremental. We will need to work together with one another. We will need to rely on each other. Here is what I know. The enemy loves to divide and conquer. Man, if he can just get between us in our walk with God, it's over. But if he can also follow up with Because he can't get between us and our walk with God, he tries to get between us and our yoke with our brothers and our sisters. Man, he does it. And he's so sly and so cunning, he just slips right in there most of the time without us even aware that what's going on in our mind and in our heart is coming from him. So-and-so just didn't even see you, but you walk away feeling like, I knew they were too good for me. I knew she thought she was too good for me. The enemy will plant seeds. Here's what I know about today. His tactics have evolved. The world has evolved. Technology has evolved. And the tactics of the enemy have evolved along with it. Man, we can get on social media. And it's not just the young people on social media, right? I'm not even sure. Where do the young people hang out at? Which social media platform? Instagram? Where do the old people hang out at? See, we all know it. We all know it. So we won't pretend like it's just the young people on social media. It's young people and it's not so young people alike. And we see the likes and we see the posts and we see the events Man, you can't even go hang out with a couple of your friends without the other five of your friends being like, how come I didn't get invited? Right? Folks are getting offended because they didn't get to go get pizza with you. It just so happened that it worked out that you guys were at the same place at the same time. And so you were like, hey, what are we going to do? We're apostolic. Let's eat. And you post a picture. Just trying to show that you're having a good time. I was glad I was so, so, and so, so, and so. And there's humor to it, but the truth of the matter is every single day it's happening. The enemy's planting seeds of doubt in your mind. He's trying to creep in and just make you feel like you don't belong here. Trying to make you feel like you'll never measure up. Tries to get you to compare yourselves among yourselves and say, I'm never going to be as good as them. 
I'm never going to be as wealthy as them. I'm never going to have it together like them. Look, have you ever been out to eat with the Hawks? Ben and Stacy Hawk? Where are you guys at? These six pews right here? Look, I'm telling you, I got two kids and I feel like I'm a good parent. I feel like I, you know, like I talk to them. I teach, teach them well. I train them well. I feel like I do a good job. We sit down at a table to eat in the fellowship hall not too long ago for an event. It was a, after a wedding. We sit down. We're having a good time. It's hot down there. It's nasty, muggy. The air's not working. Place is packed. I don't even remember what wedding it was, but this couple was popular. Well, then the next table over comes the house. And they come sit down. You don't even have a clue about this. It's in my spirit. I'm getting it out now. <laughs> they come sit down next to us, all 19 of them. <laughs> and I'm having to get on to one of my kids a little bit. They're not being really bad, but, you know, I'm frustrated too. It's hot. Food's taking forever to come out. And I look over. And all of the family is like, perfect. I'm like, how's that even possible? I'm like, everybody, so I start at this end, and I start looking. I get down to the other end of the table, and I'm like, everybody is sitting there doing what they're supposed to be doing. Don't they know it's hot? Something so innocent. I'm not really bitter. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Something so innocent. And the enemy can sow seeds of doubt. Right? What kind of parent are you? How come you can't have such and such in order? And my kids, they're great. I love them. They do a good job. It was just terrible circumstances. It's real, though. It really is. Man, you start thinking. I'll tell you what, I grew up. Is Brother Brad Titus in here? You're going to have to forgive me, man. Like, I'm bearing way too much information here. <clears throat> there was a time when my friend here, Brother Brad Titus, was going through a slump, right? Wasn't doing well. And I worked very closely with the Tituses in ministry with the young adult group. And me and Brother Brad Titus are about the same age. I'm a little bit older, maybe, a little bit. And I remember thinking, I really thought this, okay? So this is no joke. The house was a joke. This is serious. I remember thinking, man, how stupid is he? Like, if God would have given me a home with a father that loved Jesus, a mom that loved Jesus, not to mention he was successful in his career, had a lot of money, at least compared to me. Like all of my entrepreneurial ideas, like he could be funding them right now if I was Brad Titus. And there was a season, not just with Brad Titus, with multiple others where I was living in this place where I was like, man, if I wouldn't have got such a late start, if I would have known him sooner, 
or if my circumstances would have been different, then I could have what so-and-so has. And maybe I would be successful like them. And maybe I would be further along in life. And maybe my first car when we got married would at least had AC or heat or one of them. Look, man, am I the only one that has ever been there where you've allowed your mind to start drifting and start thinking about, man, what if? It would have been great if that could have been me. When you do that, let me tell you what follows. The enemy says, no, no, no. You're not good enough to be him. You're not good enough to be them. Nobody looks at you like they look at them. Nobody pays attention to you like they pay attention to him. That's what follows when we let those thoughts that seem innocent start to enter into our mind. Look, I'm going to tell you, God knows why I only got two kids. It's great. It's, this stuff didn't come cheap. Okay. If I had three kids, I'd be bald. I misspoke. That camera person just got fired. <laughs> How do you recover? I will say, Pastor, I received multiple images of myself in front of a golden calf after that message you preached a few weeks ago. <clears throat> Here's where I see a great divide. It's unhealthy. It's not of God and it's orchestrated by the enemy. I see it between our young people and our elders. <laughs> Man, I feel that. Here's the deal. If we don't expose the tactics of the enemy then he will have his way. He loves it when we pretend like we've got it all figured out. When we pretend like we've got no challenges, we've got no problems. But I'm telling you now that the enemy likes the fact that there's this great divide between our young people in the truth and our elders in the truth. Here's what he starts to tell the young people. They don't understand you. They don't get you. They're just trying to stop you from being good, trying to stop you from excelling. They can't even program their phones. And he starts picking at the young people and he's trying to convince you that the elders have no value for you. 
Now here, before we go too far, let me define an elder for you. Because I can already see folks in their 40s and 50s are like, yeah, talk about that. Here's the deal. I got to teach Bible at CCS in my mid-20s to the seniors and to the juniors in the high school. I walked into that class knowing I'm connecting with these guys. I'm young. They're going to get it. I understand them. And they acted like I was ancient. Some of them are in this room right now, and I'm still bitter. So it's not 70 and 80-year-olds and 15 and 16-year-olds that the divide is between. It's the 15, 16-year-olds and the 30-year-olds. It's the 30-year-olds and the 70-year-olds. And these divides are coming and the enemy's looking at this and he's thinking, how are they going to sustain if they don't work together? How are they going to make it if they don't yoke up with one another and work on the will of God together? Noah didn't build the ark by himself. Noah couldn't have done it by himself. He needed help to build the ark. God spoke to Noah, but the family had to have buy-in too. Says to the older people, to the 40-year-olds, the 50, the 60s, the 70-year-olds, I'm right here in the middle in the stage of life now, and I feel like I see it more clear than I've ever seen it before. Where, where elders, because of the speed of technology, start to feel like, and I'm talking now about the 60, the 70, the 80-year-olds, they start to feel like they can't fit in. And I know that seems hard to believe because they're successful in life, they've had ministries, they've been faithful to God, but they start to feel left out. And now you've got this divide and you've got the elders feeling left out or like they've got nothing to give that'll bring value. And you've got the young people thinking, well, they, they don't need us anyways because they just criticize what we're doing and, and what we're trying to get done in our lives and what, we're, what we think is cool is not what they think is cool. Here's what I want you to know. I've been in rooms where the conversation gets started and someone in their 20s is talking about the battles of today and someone in their 70s is talking about the battles of yesterday and it starts to become a competition. And it starts to feel like, well, who had the hardest battle? Which day was tougher to live for God in? Today as a young person or 45 years ago as a young person? Here's what I want you to know. Who cares? It doesn't matter which battle was harder. What we need is elders, 40, 50, 60, looking at the young people and saying, I can't understand or fathom what it must be like to live for God at your age in this day and time. I can't imagine how the enemy comes at you, but you can make it. I believe in you. You can do it. You can make it. You can live for God. You can have a ministry. You can be successful. 
Elders, we need you working with our young people like coaches do in the sports arenas. I love the role of a coach. I don't really watch sports. I don't play sports. I don't follow sports. But I know this. Coaches are vital to the success of the team. You pick any successful coach you want, and you can acknowledge the fact that while he's a great coach, he could not insert himself into the game and play like those great players. He doesn't have the speed that they have. He doesn't have the strength that they have. He doesn't have the youth that they have. But what he does have is experience and an understanding of how the game works. And so we pay millions of dollars to coaches who are willing to step out and allow their experiences and understanding of the game to be used to see the potential in some young person that they can't recognize on their own. We need elders to take young people and gather them up under your wings and tell them, I've experienced some things and I'm gonna help you so that you don't make the same mistakes that I made. I'm gonna prop you up. I'm gonna push you forward. I want you to make it. Stand with me. We can work together. We can do it. The first thing they told us when I walked into alcohol and drug rehab was, you need to admit you have a problem. If we're going to be able to help you, then you must first acknowledge that you need help. I'm not saying we're failing as a church. Man, God is doing great things at Calvary Tabernacle. Miraculous things. We're not failing as a church body. We're not failing as young people, young adults. Man, you should see their services and the campus ministries that are going on. God is doing something incredible. But we have to acknowledge we're not perfect. We have to acknowledge, God, if we're going to do it, we need you. We need your strength, God. We need your wisdom. We need your anointing. We need your word. We need the communion with you in prayer. God, we need you. And whatever it is you're desiring for us to do, God, we recognize the fact that we need each other. In every other space, as time progresses, things get better. Pastor talked about horsepower this morning. And like there was a time when a horse was the fastest way of transportation. People didn't believe that we should go any faster 
And then technology progressed and we took what we knew about this and applied it to the next era. And we were able to create something greater than we had before. And and then they took that information and what they had learned there and applied there and brought it to the next era. And they built upon that as a foundation and it got better and better and better until we get to where we are now. And you can fly hundreds and hundreds of miles an hour. You can be in Florida in a couple of hours. They got bullet trains that just like fly by. That's what God desires to do in the church. He desires to take a generation that was young 50, 60 years ago, take what they learned, take their experiences, and pour it in to the next era so that these guys in this space don't have to make the same mistakes to learn the same thing that they learned back here. And so they take all of those things and we build up the kingdom and we build up the body and then we take what we learn here and we bring it to the next generation and now this generation is two generations ahead of where they would have been back. And we keep building and building and building and progressing on. That's how we reach beyond just guarding ourselves. And we start to take back. We start to take out of the hands of the enemy. He's not worried if we start over every generation. But he is worried when we start to pour into the next generation. And the generation after that, and the generation after that, I think we should have preachers that are teenagers. I think we should have prayer warriors that are 10, 11, 12 years old. We should. But we won't get that if they have to start from ground zero every time the next generation comes. Here's what I'm asking you to do. We're going to open this altar up. Young, kids church age, youth, young adults, Bible college age, dinosaurs like me in your 40s, and elders alike. Just join around this altar. And let's pray together. God, we want to preserve the family. We want to preserve the family at home. We want to preserve the body of Christ. And God, we need each other to do it. Help us, God. Help us to have a walk with you. Help us to have a relationship with you. God, help us to work with my brother and with my sister. Help me to work with the generation that's ahead of me and the generation that's behind me. God, help us to do it. Let's join all around this altar. If you believe that we can take back territory from the enemy, I'm calling you to this altar for prayer. 
If you believe that we can pour in from generation to generation, that we can bridge the gap from our youth to the oldest of our elders. Jesus. If you believe that, then you know this to be true. We need the help of the Lord. God, we can't do it on our own. Give us a vision for it, Jesus. 